Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have in the studio with me Susie Exposito, Brittany Spanos, and Rob Sheffield. Hello, all. Hey. Hi. So we are here to talk about Beyonce at Coachella, which happened once and will happen again. And it uh, seems to have been a life-changing experience for many involved. And some of us were there. Brittany and Susie were both there. Some of us watched it, whether through means licit or illicit. But we watched it. That's what counts. We won't say how we watched it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all the same. But, you know, we would certainly never violate any copyright laws. But it was pretty incredible just at a distance. But what was it like to be there, guys? It was just (laughs) earth shattering. At least at least in our section of the audience. (laughs) I think that Coachella is a really interesting crowd, you know, to say the least. Yeah. I think especially since there was no like concert or show before like at least a year and a half before then. I think her last live performance was the Grammys. Mm-hmm. And so no one really knew what was going to happen. Like it was a surprise for everyone involved and no one knew what like would we see the formation tour? Would we see I mean, we did see something entirely new, an entirely new set, entirely new kind of context for her discography. So I think everyone was just, it was definitely very exciting in the audience. I feel like everyone was kind of waiting to see what would happen. And everyone was just blown away from the moment that she walked out like Nefertiti. (laughs) I I think some of us just forgot to emote anything. Like we were all just stunned. Brittany was crying before she sang sang a single note. It was like as soon as she rolled out, Brittany was just like a human waterworks. So we've got pure objectivity today. (laughs) I think we should take a step back and talk about what Coachella used to mean and what it means now. And maybe even how Beyonce traveled during those years. Because, you know, interestingly, like the beginning of Coachella and the beginning of Destiny's Child aren't that far apart. And both things have changed tremendously. First of all, Coachella. Coachella started as, you know, a quote unquote alternative festival. It actually, the, the, the very first year in... 1999, they were actually sort of advertising it as the anti-Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99 was the disastrous kind of dude bro fest of violence and, and mainstreamness. And Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, so we, Rob and I both, we could do an episode about that sometime. We both experienced it separately. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then, I, then I spent a year investigating it, but that's a whole other story. But Coachella was supposed to be the gentle alternative. And then it, uh, you know, it, it became a brand it became a big alternative thing and anything a place where bands could reunite and then it began to change what happened i mean i had been kind of mulling over ever since we went sort of the idea of how it's become the big celebrity culture event Mm -hmm. everyone's kind of looking forward to seeing vanessa hudgens or like real different reality show stars showing up in like their pre-festival outfits and i think it's just because it's the launch of festival season it's the first big festival every year it's proximity to hollywood it always, I feel like they always kind of have at least one headliner who doesn't necessarily play the festival circuit the entire year. Like they had Paul McCartney one year and he didn't do any other festivals. They had Madonna one year, she didn't do any other festivals. Like they always have at least one big draw. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's just the entire vibe is sort of this big, big red carpet almost of influencers and celebrities and Instagram people. Yeah, it's definitely been a destination festival. Um, that that's not as much about the music as it may have initially been. It's funny because Coachella, it seems really from very early in its history, people uh, were complaining every year that it was over fabulousized, and you know, and <laughs> it's almost like there's a theme, like from the 
2000s and, and early 20 teens, there's almost a total turnover in terms of the celebrities who mm-hmm. like flock to, to Coachella, but it still mm-hmm. has that vibe. You know, it used to be where, you know, Paris Hilton or Lindsay Lohan would get up on stage to dance with Girl Talk or yeah. CSS <laughs> or whoever. Um, and, you know, it, it's that is still an aspect of Coachella, even though all the people have changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like how you pronounce the A in Coachella. No one else does, but I think it's the correct way. The, we appreciate that. Is that wrong? No, it's correct, but no one else does it. <laughs> you, well, it's Bayachella now. Yeah, right. yeah it's, it's Bayachella. Not, not Bayachella, but Bayachella. Did, did you have the sense that you were witnessing something historic? Yes. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yeah. It was a history lesson. Yeah. Her entire set was a history lesson. And as soon as, like, I mean, as soon as the brass band rolled out, I was like, okay, we're back to school. <laughs> that was just, like, the instant vibe that I got. It was a little bit of, like, um, just just general, like, fun college vibes. But also, you know, it was an art history lesson. Immediately, she rolls out as, like, Queen Nefertiti, who was the ultimate. She was, like, the OG in ancient Egypt. And it went into, like, music history you know, we're learning about, we're, we're hearing like, you know, back that ass up, but we're also hearing Nina Simone. <laughs> and the Black National Anthem, which was incredible. Yeah. The fact that she did that, I mean, the- Lift inc- every voice and sing, yeah. 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 Um, the fact that she seeped so much of it into Black American history and also just like Southern culture and mm-hmm. like, especially HBCU culture, which just to see her do all these big, kind of this big homecoming theme to it, was incredible. I think it's been something that she's been building up to for years, and I think that we've seen her become more powerful as a black female pop star, mm-hmm. especially with Formation and Lemonade as a whole. But to see her enact that on stage and kind of take away sort of the gospel elements that a lot of the performances have been playing with over the last few years and that people kind of focused on so much, I think for her to be like, okay, this was actually the focus of my last few works and all the performances have been leaned up to this moment and this theme. Yeah, I wanted to get a little bit into that. I mean, Beyonce wasn't always kind of Beyonce in all capital letters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Certainly going back to the early Destiny's Child days, everyone was very aware of Beyonce as, you know, the the big talent in the group, to say the least, since everyone else seemed a little bit, you know, I stand for LaToya. I always <laughs> yeah. LaToya aside, yes. Uh, I, I'm ride or die for Latavia. But she, she's, she's interesting. I mean, one of the millions of unique things about Beyonce is the way she started as a pop artist and broke as a pop artist and then crossed over to R&B and crossed over mm-hmm. to hip hop, which was mm-hmm. the opposite of how it was supposed to go. She had, you know, top 40 is where she broke with, you know, no, no, no. And, and the early like Destiny's Child hits. And as she has gone on, she has embraced the extreme aspects of what she does and the historic aspects of what she does in, in a way that seems totally unprecedented and unique to me. Yeah, I think there was a moment in the early 2000s, especially when she was breaking as a solo star, where she was too black to fit in with the white pop stars and too like too white almost to fit in with like the black music stars at that time. I think people, because she presented herself with blonde hair and she tried mm-hmm. for accessibility and she tried for universality with her music, that there was a lot of kind of pushback from both sides of the music industry about where she should fit. And yeah, apparently a big factor was actually her her dad, 
Her mm-hmm. dad was suspicious of hip hop leaning mm-hmm. material. Mm-hmm. He was pushing her towards quote unquote what he saw as mainstream pop, not understanding that hip hop actually right. was becoming mainstream pop, and yeah. she would be a big force of of cementing that. But so that you can hear that push and pull in her mm-hmm. early work, and it was a very real thing. They would fight about it, apparently. Yeah, you know, and he was a very obviously domineering figure, and you know, really got involved in this stuff. And and so I, I think I think that's all really interesting. But she started to win that battle, you know, as early as you know as B Day, her second solo mm-hmm. album. You know, ring the alarm, get me bodied, all that stuff is, you know, is 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 what she wanted, not what anyone else around her wanted. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think a bunch of us are, are big fans of Four, which is somewhat the underlooked yeah. Beyonce <laughs> I album. I love Four. Yeah. If anything by Beyonce can be underlooked, I think it, it is. It's, yeah. it, it's so fascinating just, just that it used to seem like Four was, you know, that was when it was like, okay, a new Beyonce album, it's a new Beyonce album. Mm-hmm. Like she was just about to begin this like massive liftoff where she kind of broke off from the rest of the solar system yeah <laughs> Lo- love on top love on top for me was one of the moments when i was like i mean i love beyonce i'd always been deeply impressed with her but love on top kind of like almost knocked me out of my chair yeah. it's mm-hmm. such a bravura crazy thing with it has like a thousand key changes yep. it's nuts <laughs> it's nuts and you're like and it's one of those hints that she's going for something that no one's really ever gone for before do we have that we didn't even get to the crazy part but <laughs> but it, it sort of it, it, and and four was was sort of the prelude to what would come as far as like she is really becoming an album artist you know in a way that was very different from what you know, probably the people around her had aspirations for. She was transcending pop, really. I think yeah. looking at it in, in the context also of it following I Am Sasha Fierce, which was, which was a very ambitious um, and very strictly pop album, double album that was kind of fitting into this sort of like Gaga era of having persona and having mm-hmm. this alter ego on stage. And she was trying to fit in with that. And single ladies, I mean, one of her most iconic songs and one of the biggest songs. I heard it's a pretty good video. Someone once said, "Pretty, yeah." yeah. <laughs> I think I think Kanye might be a fan of it. Um, and it's just such a big moment for her and her career, and for kind of solidifying her as an artist who can dominate the charts. And then Four came out, and it was this really cool R and B album that had like Frank Ocean writing for it, that also didn't really do well on the charts and didn't really go anywhere especially after single ladies and so i think she talked about it in life is but a dream but it almost felt like a disappointment after you have one of the biggest hits of your career something that transcended even her first her debut solo hit crazy in love and then four which was i think a nearly perfect album Mm -hmm. just didn't go anywhere in many ways i guess it was the end of the old beyonce yeah rather than the the beginning of the new beyonce because the gap between four and beyonce it's such a just you know it's it's like the Beatles going from help to revolver you know there's just like (laughs) just total jump and the fact that her Super Bowl performance came after four which was an album that didn't do as well as her other albums kind of shows that Beyonce as a person transcends even just numerical sort of value over what an album is (laughs) 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 like it didn't like the Super Bowl performance didn't come after the Mm self-titled which was I mean we can get to it later but like one of the biggest the biggest moment of her career yeah just like the fact that that came even before that is wild to me too and, and, <laughs> and so wild that you know watching the super bowl performance now it's like oh and 
on the way she was actually making this secret album we didn't know yeah. about like probably <laughs> after she did that Super Bowl she was you know just went back and finished Partition or something yeah. like that <laughs> and the, the self-titled album released in 2013 without any promotion without anything yeah. just total surprise which I believe that was the f- kind of the, the beginning of that whole thing yeah. and the flex of that cannot be sort of changed underestimated the world with that digital drop it, it, it's, yeah. and absolutely now, changed the world with that <laughs> digital drop and, and now, we, now we are completely sick of surprise albums that we would like people to stop them but at the time <laughs> at least personally but at the time to release something like that it wasn't just surprise. No one even knew, you know, that she'd been working on it or the collaborators. It was just, it was a true, true surprise. And with complete with videos, you mm-hmm. know, she had, that was the other big surprise. She had managed to, comp- you know, film a, a whole album's worth of videos yeah. mm-hmm. and, or visuals or whatever we're calling it now. And it just, it was of, as you said, a huge leap forward out of nowhere. And it's just like, it feels like the world's just now st- stopping the tremoring that, that came from that release. Well, with the, the live show, it, Co- Coachella, Coa, Co- <laughs> Coachella, at, at Baychella. But but the way she, uh, what do you think of like the way she used her own history in, in that performance? Because she was mixing up, it seemed that deep cuts and the hits. Yep. I mean, th- that she did. I care is like kind of a kind of a major deal, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> I love that song. But it was really amazing to see her sort of like go through her history and sort of rewrite her history. It was definitely like a a thesis of her entire career and all the little um just snippets of other songs you know like hearing Fela Kuti hearing Sister Nancy those were like footnotes in her thesis she was just <laughs> citing her sources you know <laughs> and just going through different um parts of like the black diaspora in, in different, you know, in between different songs and just citing her sources. Like, I remember there was just this fabulous tropical block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, yeah, mine and baby boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, she played that um, Sister Nancy, you could hear Don Penn. And, like, then I think that's when she, like, transitioned into Mi Gente. Yeah. Which that that was part of her tropical block, which I really enjoy. And you know, in in that, it's it's so much more than just citing her own sources in her personal career. But she's such a good um, curator when it comes to identifying like what's happening in culture, like in general, and you know, picking things that she likes, but that she can also relate to. You know, when she uh, did the remix for Mi Gente. That was actually, um, that was already a J Balvin and Willie, Willie Williams song. And Blue Ivy was just like dancing to that song all the time. And that's when she decided to remix it. But in order to remix it, she decided that she needed to learn Spanish. So she got Luis Fonsi's brother, Jean. And he like went to her house and like tutored her in Spanish <laughs> so that she could get it right. Um, and so when she brought that remix out, that was like her you know, identifying with the culture in a way, um, you know, with with like Caribbean culture, Latin culture, but also like tying it back into the African diaspora and just seamlessly like blending it in with like her, all the like existing music that she has in her discography. It was, yeah. I mean, there was a definite mission there, and, and part of it is Coachella as sort of a white space. Yeah. And she made it clear that she was very aware of being the first black female headliner at Coachella. Right. 
and uh, ain't that a bitch? I think she said. <laughs> yeah. And um, but what's I think really interesting is just part of a generational artistic thing is to think of what Prince did when he played Coachella because mm -hmm. Prince. Prince's instinct was to quote unquote like bridge the gap or whatever he he was covering Radiohead he was kind of trying to meet people where they were or something yeah. and of course I was thinking about to what extent he was doing that to the what extent he was just being Prince being Prince because mm -hmm. Prince you know came from rock as well as everything else but I think there was you know he he was being an entertainer in that moment and and trying to remind the kids that he was down with what they were down whereas Beyonce was uncompromising mm -hmm. and uh, quite the opposite of compromising and she even I, I think her mom had an Instagram post where her mom was like <laughs> her mom was like you know Beyonce like I don't think they're gonna get a lot yeah. of this stuff they're not gonna yeah. get these reference to, to you know historical black colleges and all this stuff like I'm worried that they're literally just not gonna understand it and she said something like you know I've, I've worked really hard to get to this point of the career where I want to be able to deliver what I want to deliver and not worry about you know expectations which is you know, it's incredible and you can tell and it, it ends up being, yes, it was a it was a performance. And by the way, we should say that, you know, she was supposed to perform in 2017 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then she said, thank God I got pregnant instead. Mm -hmm. And she was then given a lot of time, as she said, to dream up this performance. Yeah. This is, you know, there's so much to talk about, but part of it is, is just she is a, a wonderful example of, of just, you know, like outworking everyone. It's mm -hmm, not just mm -hmm. this and she has this extraordinary innate talent, but she's the degree to which she's just willing to work everyone into the ground. And part of that is just, you know, I, I think built into these ideas like about black excellence and just mm -hmm. she's going to show that she is better, <laughs> a better performer, a harder, harder worker performer than, than you know, pretty much anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, going back to, to what you said about the when Prince played and sort of kind of meeting halfway thing. We were actually watching videos from when Beyonce played Glastonbury mm -hmm. in 2007, 2008, about, I mean, at least a decade ago. And it was interesting because there was so much controversy around that and around her performing at Glastonbury, which, you know, for audiences and for the people who organize it is much more of a rock festival and much, much wider than Beyonce performing at it. And the people same controversy, so yeah, the same controversy surrounded Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. And she like did a cover of Sex on Fire in the middle of the performance. I think she did The Beautiful Ones and then Sex on Fire um, was her cover. And it's just interesting that it almost around that era, she was doing so many covers of stereotypically white rock songs she was doing you ought to know and she was doing things like that to kind of signify these rock moments in her performances mm -hmm. and so it was really fascinating that we're <laughs> at she's at this point in her career where she absolutely does not have to do those signifiers at all and how far she's come in that decade where she doesn't have to she doesn't have to meet people halfway. Yeah, yeah. She exactly. Could, she's like, actually, meet me over here. Meet me over here. Meet me at Fela. Meet me at these other, like, meet me at Nina Simone. Don't meet me at Kings of Leon. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Per, per, personally, personally, that would be the destination I would choose the meeting at. But yeah, uh, for sure. The weird thing about, you know, again, these sort of quote unquote rock festival performances or former rock festivals is there is this idea and it's it's kind of plugged into the sort of like no effort slacker ethos that that is a little bit embedded in into the whole thing it, it's like you know you just get up there and sing your songs was kind of like the idea for a very long time for the most part and even when Madonna showed up in like whatever it was 2006 with her dancers and everything people were like oh well you know dance she should have left the dancers at home you know what I mean because this is idea that that's not what a festival performance mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. and I feel like if there was any doubt about that Beyonce might have just changed that forever not just that but also the performance now that she did was a one-off 
designed and made for Coachella. It wasn't part of her tour. Like you said, it wasn't yeah. just a spinoff from the tour. It was totally different. Mm-hmm. So again, everyone's like, oh God, now I have to make a whole elaborate performance of a headline quote. <laughs> so how, how will this affect festival performances going forward? Or will everyone just realize, oh, we can't top that. We're leaving that alone. We're not even going to factor that in. I mean, I think all the most engaging performances I've seen at festivals have been the pop artists, just because mm-hmm. I think they're going up against um, an audience that may not really want to see them or maybe coming for other stuff, especially if they're on smaller stages, if they're not headliners. I mean, I remember seeing Gaga perform at Lollapalooza. It was her first headlining there at um, in 2010. And I remember like that. I remember thinking that was the most amazing thing after an entire weekend of like bands and DJ sets to see her wrestle with an octopus on stage. I was just like, this is great. This is a nice little like weird moment in the middle of my weekend. <laughs> Who won uh, between? I believe the octopus did. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> explains a lot, actually. So this performance was literally in some ways made to be think pieced or at least made to be sort of analyzed and, and unpacked. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of cultural artifact because there's so much packed into it. Mm-hmm. And but watching it live, which I did not do, how did it kind of creep in that, oh my God, she's embedding so much into this. This is, you know, between from the inst- interstitial songs to lift every voice and sing to the Nina Simone, there's just, you could list, and, and you did in, in your article, Susie, you know, the, there's just so much in there. So describe sort of realizing just how much was being thrown at you guys. I realized it just by taking notes on my iPhone. My head was just spinning because it just... It would not stop. <laughs> like all the references would not stop. And I was like, I don't know. My head was going to explode, but in, in a really fun way. You're right. It never stopped. It was, it was just encyclopedic. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that was really cool is when she actually said, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. We put a lot of work into this. Yeah. Just making it explicit. Like this was months of work. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it was just, it was so hard to, absorb everything because she was going she goes through everything so quickly and she also would come back to songs like she did part of flawless then she did the remix like 20 minutes later and Mm -hmm. then she did the chimamanda speech like another 20 minutes later like it was just very like she cut up her it was like a collage and it was just like the most just like well curated collage of things happening because it just would happen so fast um but also just felt like it didn't feel overwhelming Mm -hmm. but it it definitely like was something that you had to consume again. Like I was watching videos later and I was like, oh, I missed this reference that she did or this like weird moment or like weird dance move that she was doing or that was referencing a video or referencing something else that she had done. Yeah. And it was just, it was interesting the way that she had combined everything and kind of was cutting up her own discography with all these other moments and references. How did it compare at like as a experience to the formation tour for you? I didn't actually go to the formation tour. I went to um, oh. On the Run, yeah. And I saw the the Lemonade performance at the VMAs. And so those were the, the times I've seen Beyonce live. And I mean, having seen her during On the Run, I mean, it was just, it was also very overwhelming because it was her discography, Jay's discography, like their history. There's also like a lot of video content happening. Like it was, I'm, she's, I mean, no one really does a stadium show better. Mm-hmm. We would be remiss not mentioning that you know Destiny's Child reunited. Yeah. What was it like when that as that happened? Um, when I just saw them rise <laughs> upon the stage, I just saw their silhouettes doing like the Charlie's Angels, like <laughs> <laughs> Kelly and Michelle on either side of Beyonce <laughs> with like the handguns. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> this yeah. is gonna be good. 
Because <laughs> I recognized girl before I saw them come up. So I was like, oh my yeah. God, Beyonce's doing Girl by Destiny's Child. <laughs> yeah. I was really excited because I love that song. And they just kind of had the interlude play over them. Because we were wondering, like, we had been curious about what, like, who she would bring on stage with her. Because we were thinking oh. about who was at the festival. Latavia. Oh. Could have been, been. Yeah, yeah. could have been Latavia. Oh my God. We were just wondering, like, who, like there was rumors that Ed Sheeran was going to come out because he was in the desert. We were wondering if Jay Balvin would show up. Like, we were wondering, like, who, who was present? And we were going through Instagram and we're like who is here we saw <laughs> Nicki Minaj and Shania Twain in a photo yeah and, and we I was like, like Shania's gonna do together <laughs> yes together wow. with The weekend oh and Timothee Chalamet it was a big photo for me personally I know and we were we were like Brittany and I were writing fanfic basically yeah. like in our hotel room I really wanted Shania to come out and do daddy lessons with her which that's was... what we thought oh my god <laughs> we thought that Nikki was gonna show up during feeling myself by that point if you told me if there was a rumor saying that Stevie Nicks was gonna show up along with Destiny's Child to do Bootylicious I would have believed it um, I almost started that rumor yeah. <laughs> we had to hold back from tweeting all of our fanfics yeah. <laughs> admirable, admirable Robin, I, yeah, Robin and I just want to hear about this particular 10 version of the performance that you guys made up beforehand. Sounds <laughs> yeah. even cooler. Really, really we really had like, we had planned it all out. We had hired our heads. And yeah. it was even better than we could have imagined. But I think there yeah. is, she brought the guests out so much later in the concert than, I mean, I feel like anyone else could really get away with. Yeah. Um, because I think it was about an hour in that Destiny's Child came out and then it was like, or may, I think maybe Jay came out first. Yeah. And then it was Destiny's Child. And so... Yeah, like the way that she kind of brought out, like Jay was expected, but Destiny's Child was, it was really refreshing. And Solange was, I mean, they did the entire Get Me Body dance from the music video, which was amazing. And um, yeah, I mean, every everything felt like a genuine surprise when these people came out, just because she could have easily just done it herself. No one. Mm-hmm. One yeah. of the things we've been sort of robbed of, perhaps to use too strong a word, you know, I'd love to know where her interest in New Orleans horns has come from because there's been so mm -hmm. much of that that you know you can hear it in Daddy Lessons as much as it's a country song, also has that that New Orleans stomp to it. Yeah. And there was so much of that in this performance, mm -hmm. and very authentically so. And it's funny, Questlove was saying with just the technical side of him was just kind of cringing at the nightmare of all those microphones and all those like just mixing the shows. There's yeah. so many horns and so many. There's yeah. so much going on. It was also a a massive technical uh, achievement, but Rob, sitting uh, sitting wherever you sat to watch this, what, what what were your favorite parts? In Brooklyn on a laptop, yeah. <laughs> very much like living vicariously through Brittany and Susie. I'm just so glad that you documented it as you did. Uh, it it just seems like her sense of history just keeps expanding, and the way she incorporates that very explicitly into the show. Kind of like what she said at the Grammys about capturing the profundity of deep Southern culture. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's something that she has yeah. worked very self-consciously into into her act. But it's amazing, like especially since like her taking off as a live performer is a relatively recent development in her history, that that's become something that she's claimed as the lane where, that she does better than anyone. Mm -hmm. It's kind of astounding to see how she's uh, evolving at such an extreme rate. Yeah. Like, there's like an intellectual heft to these performances, which is an interesting thing to say about a, a festival performance or really certainly doesn't apply to most live popular music performances of any, any genre, mm -hmm. but it has a, a real depth to it that people could be talking about for years in some ways. Yeah, and Destiny's Child were not a live, they were not a great live group. They mm -hmm. were not even a good live group. I guess the first time I saw Beyonce on stage, 
uh, Destiny's Child were playing uh, George W. Bush's inauguration. This was in January 2001, <laughs> and uh, it was in Washington, D.C., and Beyonce was on stage leading the crowd. And when I say George, you say Bush, George, Bush, George, Bush. No. That should and, be the first scene in the documentary. You well, know? <laughs> it's kind of amazing that, you know, fast forward eight years and she's at, at Obama's inauguration singing an Etta James song. And and there was no controversy whatsoever about this. And, and just the sense that she everybody wants wants to just bask in her glow. Yeah. Playing that inauguration feels really like a Matthew Knowles special. Like, you take the gig, you know? <laughs> like, 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 you get off of the gig, you take the gig. She yeah. was into we don't it. don't turn it down was, gigs. It was, it, was, no, no. it was not an autopilot gig. Okay. She was doing much more crowd work than anybody else, except for Jessica Simpson, who was also changing the words of the songs <laughs> there about George Bush. Mm-hmm. So she did, boy, I think I'm in love with you. She did, George, I think that I'm in love with you. Oh. Like, uh. so, some people were just coming out and doing their show at this particular gig, <laughs> Beyonce was like really working the we love George Bush thing and it's it's just Texas yeah yeah, it was very strange at the time that 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 the person who is most famous at that inaugural (laughs) festival was the one who was working hardest to to (laughs) pimp the presidency but it's amazing that the sense of of just absorbing history and and channeling history that she's made such a huge part of her life show yeah and I mean so many I feel like pop itself and the way that we think of pop stars and pop shows is the idea of giving everyone a history lesson on yourself. And I think mm-hmm. pop is so embedded in personal histories and in personal cycles and the way that they develop the character of their pop persona. Yeah. And Beyonce's pop persona, other than Sasha Fierce, has been Beyonce. Sasha Fierce was like a minor moment in time that kind of has dissolved since then. And it's interesting that in lieu of not having these, like this idea of major eras and major kind of structural moments that bring her outside of who Beyonce is as a person she's taken that focus onto her the history of her identity and the history of her family and the history of her communities at large and that's I mean that's just like unprecedented really what did you think of uh, Jay-Z's appearance brief Mm. I'm glad it wasn't for (laughs) drunken love (laughs) yeah I didn't want to hear that verse I would (laughs) have I was a little concerned when she started singing I was too empowered for her for him to come out and do that Ike and Tina line right during drunken love um yeah I think the the funniest thing that I observed when Jay walked out on stage was that a lot of people I feel could not tell whether to boo him or to cheer for him (laughs) just in the aftermath of Lemonade and he also was the only person that forgot like his line yeah he messed up his uh, his deja vu verse he like rolled out of bed and like walked out on stage it was I imagine he was pretty nervous (laughs) yeah probably it's a high stress situation yeah yeah And it was interesting because, I mean, that was a whole other thing with the guests and who would come out is the fact that she had um, she had done so many songs, so many for Jay-Z collaborations. And then he like she had done. She started with Crazy in Love. She had already done Drunk in Love. She had done so much of the stuff. And then and then he came out about like an hour or so. in. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm curious uh, what really stuck out to you. And then Susie wrote a whole piece that I encourage everyone to look at about sort of 10 highlights. But, you know, share with us what really stuck out to you. For me, I loved seeing kind of funny Beyonce and seeing her a little bit lighter. She did the the bugaboo little skit in the middle where she made the men try to make her laugh. Um, (laughs) And especially just kind of like the emotional weight of... I mean, the self-titled and Lemonade especially um, 
to kind of see her do something a little bit funnier and a little mm-hmm. um, a little bit lighter, a little cheekier in the middle of her performance. She really doesn't do that. When she does take the moment to speak, it's really kind of like, how y'all doing? And hey, New York, or hey, California. <laughs> and so it was nice to see that, like, this little moment of kind of weirdo skit. It kind of reminded me of Kanye's late registration and that, like, the kind of frat, you know, broke five broke skits in the middle of those songs. Um, to see her kind of play even more with the HBCU and the kind of Greek life theme was was really was really nice. The the make me laugh sequence is known in some quarters as the uh, excuse me, but the suck on my balls sequence because that uh-huh. was the phrase that was chanted and it was <laughs> yeah. interesting. Obviously, you know, people point out to you know it's it's sort of a reclamation or a seizing of that phrase for her mm-hmm. as, as a woman, which is uh, perhaps a, a proud moment in the history of you know epithets. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh-huh. What did you make of it? Because it went on for a while. <laughs> I just did. I mean, it was like one of those moments where you just couldn't even really absorb what was happening, but it was just so. I was completely blown away because it was so funny and I couldn't stop laughing. Just the fact that Beyonce, who is just one of, who's become one of the most serious performers to observe just because she takes every single aspect of her craft so seriously to really do this suck on my balls chant mm-hmm. in the middle of her Coachella performance was mm-hmm. just, it was beautiful. And again, <laughs> I, I, not to, to harp on her dad, but I'm just very aware of that. And it's partially because I used to talk to him all the time when mm-hmm. I worked at MTV News. Mm-hmm. I'm just aware of his like sort of severe manner. And I can yeah. just imagine how I'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we do not do suck on my balls. No, no, no. And it's just the total freedom she has, you know, to, yeah. you know, to be, to be vulgar if she wants, to be, you know, incredibly deep, to do whatever she wants. She is an utterly free performer but Susie what what were some other that part I mean, aside I know I, yeah. I want to I want to talk about that part I mean yeah. she's a grown-ass woman and um, I think that was why her self-titled was such a huge deal you know she broke away from the like Christian respectability yes. that she'd yeah. been brought up with and you know and Lemonade was like just such a sobering um opus you know and so her bugaboo sketch was like the funniest thing I was cackling the whole time I described it as a PG-13 humiliation play because she just like assumed the position like she's not here to fool around you know like she and her sorority sisters you're just like bullying these men and everybody was eating it up you know was that Um, around the time when she said like something like ladies have we had enough yeah yeah she goes ladies are we smart are we strong have we had enough and then she was like show (laughs) them and that's when they started doing like the step team routine yeah like chanting suck on my balls and the men they like drop down you know (laughs) on the ground (laughs) it's just so gratifying I mean after after everything that she'd outlined in Lemonade especially like I think Brittany was right to say that um, she really had to fight to um, be taken seriously so like her her last couple albums had taken on this really like dark tone and so um, this this was just so like festive and like um, just just joyous you know just just being able to see her make the audience laugh um, was special yeah I mean you look at the set list and you realize that you know her sort of greatest hits are it's it's 
so broad. There's so much great music. It's it's like a whole century, uh, you know, a whole quarter century of music practically mm-hmm. from one person mm-hmm. that traverses this era. I mean, it, she really is, a, you know, people are now daring to say, you know, I think Questlove said, other people say, you know, she, she's taking that spot that Michael Jackson has. Mm-hmm. You know, she's the preeminent pop artist of our time. And this, you know, there's been lots of coronations. I think, Susie, my impression reading your article is you feel like this was very important. This was, you, you compared mm-hmm. it to, you know, Monterey Pop and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that um, as a young student of rock and roll, um, I grew up reading all about Woodstock. I mean, I remember like watching Woodstock 99. I was probably too young to be watching that. But like, you know, (laughs) I I remember watching a lot of um, documentaries and stuff on like VH1 about all these old festivals and thinking to myself, oh, like, I wish I wish I could have seen, you know, Pearl Jam or I wish I could have seen um, Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, I just I kept thinking to myself throughout Beyonce's performance, like, this is that moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so happy that Beyonce was the one to deliver that. I mean, she's not just I mean, she, she's like a rock star, but an overall just like musical genius of our time. Yeah, I think especially those festivals in our context of them, you know, I would watch Jimi Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. And that was, I mean, such a career making moment for him, but also one of the most important moments in rock history. And Mm -hmm. I mean, to festivals, especially just because we have such a deluge of them and because festival culture has become something so separate from, I mean, what we talked about in the beginning has become separate from music and become separate from career making moments Mm -hmm. they're really just kind of people coming out to reunite bands from like decades ago and having you know performing just like whatever big hit has just come out and to see Beyonce take advantage of this moment and create something so special and create this I mean just career defining performance and also in a festival setting was amazing to witness mm-hmm. yeah. you make a good point I mean you know it's not just Coachella as a as a white space but it's also Coachella is kind of a vapid space yeah yeah <laughs> like music has become the background for people taking now I sound old but taking you know selfies of each other yeah. in like their you're Coachella not talking outfits. about it for the yeah. rest of the year yeah yeah, yeah. no and one's all wa- like people aren't watching it from home mm-hmm. so, so she's taking this what it was in danger of becoming an empty exercise mm-hmm. in fashion and foisting brilliant art upon it, which is the greatest thing you know you could possibly be doing. Yeah, yeah. But Susie, you were talking about "Love on Top" as the song we were talking about earlier, but that was the concluding song of the performance, mm-hmm. and that sort of sent you over the top as far as your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, it was it was transcendent. I mean, you know, uh, I think that was a brilliant song for her to. Um, end with uh i mean we were talking about you know how four wasn't that remarkable of an album at the time i guess it it came out like in 2011 and that that was on four and i always i always thought that song was just such a brilliant exercise like in her vocal range and it kind of it it takes it takes her back a little bit you know like before all of this intense drama and you know, before she started getting more political or before she started engaging more explicitly with like the politics of today, she just went back to this purely like celebratory song. And I I found that that was a beautiful finish. It's funny to go back and hear some of these songs that we used to think of as peak Beyonce, you Mm -hmm. know, because we didn't know 
nobody could have guessed <laughs> they had no idea. what was what was on deck. And it's funny, you know, earlier in the show when we were listening to Halo and 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 it was a really strange sense memory of like, remember thinking this was as Beyonce as Beyonce could get. Yeah. You know, like yeah. and Countdown is another song like that that yeah. you know, it's like at the time it was like, Wow, can you believe she scaled this mountaintop? Uh we'll never see the likes of this again. And it's funny that now like we think of like, Oh yeah, Sasha Fierce happened. Oh yeah, yeah B Day happened. Like like because, you know, what she's done in the last two albums has been so extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She won the Video Vanguard Award before Lemonade. You know, it's, it's yeah. just, so you could just take Lemonade alone would be all you really needed for Beyonce to be, you know, one of the greatest artists of all time. I have this Beyonce as Yates thing because, like, <laughs> one of the many fascinating things about Yates, he was the only uh, writer who did hit the greatest work of his life after winning the Nobel Prize mm. for literature, and it's kind of that. Yates had already built this career and it was already, yeah, he's Yates. He does his Yates kind of stuff. He does, you know, 1919 and, and then like Yates decides to like start getting spooky, start doing, you know, crazy stuff like a vision and per Amica Salentia Lunae. Mm-hmm. And suddenly like the greatest work of, of Yates's life is what he did after he got to the mountaintop because after mm-hmm. he got to the mountaintop, he could do all this crazy stuff that he always would have wanted to do before. Yeah. It's like Beyonce is like an example of that is somebody who got to a place where she could have just, you know, kept doing the Beyonce thing forever. I could think of no better way to end this than Beyonce and Yates, and I hope her, her weird Irish mysticism period comes really soon. <laughs> but this, this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was lucky enough to have Susie Exposito, Brittany Spanos, and Rob Sheffield in the studio. We'll be back next week here on Volume, Channel 106 at 1 p.m. on Friday. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.